and welcome to ESPN's The Far Post podcast. Tokyo 2020 has come to an end for the women's football. We have new gold medalists. It's Canada. It took penalties to get them over the line and to get that gold to change the colour of the medal, but they did it, beating Sweden 3-2 on penalties. It's gold for Canada, silver for Sweden, and as we uh, chatted about yesterday, bronze for the USA. So it's been an incredible tournament. It's been a very hectic, uh, fast and furious two weeks, but we're here to wrap the tournament as a whole and get some other perspectives besides the four voices that you are used to hearing to, uh, listening to rather. So it's me, Marissa Lodanik, Angela Christian-Wilkes, Sam Lewis and Anna Harrington. And in addition to these four, it is Susie Rack from The Guardian and Caitlin Murray, who has been covering the US for ESPN. So Susie and Caitlin, thanks so much for jumping on with us. Thanks for having me. No problem. So let's get into this gold medal match because it was, we went the full gamut of emotions with this one. We had the 1-1 draw at the end of regular time, the end of, uh, the end of extra time, and we had to go all the way to penalties. Canada eventually got up there. Susie, you're in Tokyo at the moment. You were at this gold medal match. How did you see it? Yeah, I, it was a weird one, especially after the game the night before, which, I mean, it, you sort of went from a boxing match to a chess match, um, which was a weird feeling. Um, so, yeah, really, really cagey performance from both, which you would expect from two really defensively solid teams. Um, and the thing that I think swung it Canada's way, and I think that they've done really well at all tournament is um, that they've used the five substitutions really, really well. Um, so whenever the game, the momentum has slightly been going against them, they've brought on some players and it's just tipped tipped it back the other way slightly. Um, and at every point they've done that, it's it's been effective. And I, I watched uh, five of their six games live. Um, and um, yeah, like, at every single point they did that and they did it no matter what the time was as if the momentum was shifting against them they would make the change so they made quite a few half-time substitutions um you know quite some quite brave ones obviously Christine Sinclair looked shattered but to be bold enough five minutes before extra time to take off a player like that um who is desperate for this gold medal um and throw on a few a few players with significantly less experience um, as you're going towards extra time and a penalty shootout. Me is extremely brave. I think that's that's how they did it. They didn't play the prettiest football of the tournament, um, and you know I think you know Sweden. Um, I mean, Hedvig Lindahl said it, you know it felt like it was theirs to to lose after the game and was absolutely devastated. And obviously, they, all, they all, all of the Swedish players were. But um, I think, you know, there's there's possibly maybe a little bit too much criticism of Canada for the way they played, but they very much played to their strengths, um, which, you know, took them to gold. So can you criticise defensive play and a use of pacey wingers if it's going to be effective and get you results when you're a country that doesn't even have a, its own professional league? Yeah, Susie, I was just on Canada. Like one thing that I loved about them was how much they called on youth. 
um, especially in that final. We saw obviously Grosso take the penalty, but it felt like throughout that match, is that is that what's been the difference in this tournament? Because two years ago when we saw in the World Cup, they were, it was just dross. Like they were so bad to watch. And I know that they've not been the prettiest this tournament, but it feels like they have been able to call on youth and added that flair. Is that is that something you've noticed having watched them so much this tournament? Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that Bev was saying was um, she thinks the key was that they've had, they've got depth in the squad that they've never had before. Um, and you know, the, I mean, the fact that Jesse Fleming took like scored three penalties in the in the between the final and semi final, and she's twenty three and she barely plays for Chelsea at the moment because she's only just joined. Um, you know, the the belief running through the squad is insane, um, and that 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 is what feels really impressive and, and Sinclair said in the uh, press conference afterwards that um, that uh, she does feel that previously she's felt the pressure to um, to perform and the sort of the weight of expectation of, of everyone on her shoulders but this tournament she didn't feel that because the confidence in the group as a whole was so high that she didn't feel like she had to carry the team um, and yeah I think that it's not just that they had youth, it's that they had youth that were super, super confident, had been given like uh, a shed load of belief, knew that they would be getting minutes in like most games and um, and yeah, and just went all out for it. And that that was great to see. Um, and hope hopefully it spurs things on in Canada a bit, which is what Sinclair was saying at the end as well in the press conference. Like she was really saying she wants to see Canada have a professional league. She wants to see them have some professional teams. Um, and she said, if you know, if three medals, three Olympic medals, and a gold can't do it, then what can basically? And on Christine Sinclair, I might throw to Kate for this question. Kate, you've been following Sink in the NWSL for a really long time. You know how extraordinary she is. We know how extraordinary she is. But how important is this moment for her in terms of her career? Like, can you sort of give us the, the layman's version of just how important Sinclair has been to women's football and what this gold medal means? Yeah, I've watched Sinclair a lot here in Portland, Oregon, where I am. She plays for the Thorns. And she's a player that, like Susie was saying, she's carried Canada on her back for about 20 years at this point. She has kept Canada in tournaments where, based on the talent differential around her, Canada really didn't necessarily have any business competing at that level. But she's so good that she was able to help Canada sort of punch above their weight. So to see her get a gold medal at this point after all she's given to Canada is a really special moment for her. It's the same sort of thing with Marta. I think we all would have loved to see Marta do that for Brazil. But for Sinclair, I mean, this would be a great way to potentially, you know, end her career. But I have to say in the press conference, it doesn't really sound like she's ready to go out on a high note. Uh, Bev uh, Priestman was saying, you know, an another Olympics, another Olympics. So this might not be the, the end for Sinclair, but I think if it was, she could walk away happy with what she's done. Caitlin, what does this, like, Canada first beat in the US and then going on to win gold, what does it do for the relationship there or for, for the US women's national team generally? Because it feels like, um, for us, it's like when you, if New Zealand beat us, um, like it's that little sibling sort of thing. I can imagine Canada, there must be a similar thing. Like, what does it do, firstly, in terms of the, the balance of power there, but also in terms of, of 
and maybe even driving the US like because I can imagine it would it would have really like irked him seeing Canada come out on top oh 100% these teams don't like each other that much I mean they like each other uh for their club teams but when it comes to the Canada US rivalry there are some definite emotions there and Canada had not beaten the US since 2001 coming into this Olympics 36 games Canada could not beat the US and then suddenly they did it so for the US that had maybe the worst tournament I've ever seen them play uh, for a whole bunch of reasons we could talk about uh, losing to Canada was just sort of like twisting the knife it was already going bad enough for the US so to have Canada then turn around and beat them I think certainly it's going to reinvigorate this rivalry that was an extremely one-sided rivalry Canada was very into it I would say being honest the U.S. was not quite as into the rivalry but that's certainly going to change going forward now and um I think for the U.S. it can add motivation to motivation I think they're already going to draw from having such a subpar tournament I mean you look at a, a bronze medal that's you know I think a lot of teams would be happy with that but for the U.S. that's unacceptable so uh this is certainly going to be a little kick in the pants for them. <laughs> it rude that they couldn't just slip up one more game though, Caitlin, to be honest. <laughs> Our girls would have been yeah, parading bronze medals yeah. down the streets of Tokyo. They might have missed their flights home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, for from an American perspective, the US had gone so long in this tournament looking just unrecognizable. This is not the US team we have been watching since you know, the 80s when the team started. So to see them sort of get their mojo back against Australia in that bronze medal match, it was a little bit of re- a relief for the players, for the fans, I think for everyone to say, oh, this team is still there. They didn't just disappear. They're not gone forever. Um, but I certainly feel for you guys, um, you know, that, that was a crazy game. That was a fun game. You know, if the format of the Olympics was different, and the the game in the group stage wasn't meaningless maybe we could have gotten something like that in the group stage that would have been really fun so i hope ioc is paying attention and you know they'll expand the tournament next time i was really interested actually caitlin on your perspective on that game i think you touched on it a little bit there but also you've written about it quite a lot what like what's going on with this us women's national team but i'd love for our listeners for you to maybe provide your leading theory and we can also share that article that you wrote for ESPN on those different thoughts and onions on why this tournament has been what it is for the U.S. Yeah well that article uh you know you you use the word theory and that's exactly right because the sort of perplexing thing is that we don't really know necessarily why the U.S. was so bad in this tournament The last time the U.S. had a tournament where they lost as badly as they did, um, you know, 3-0 against Sweden was in 2007 against Brazil. They lost 4-0. And there was a very clear reason for that. The coach made a really dumb decision. He didn't start Hope Solo. He started a goalkeeper that hadn't played in eight months. Like, you could look at how bad that was, and you had a reason. For this tournament, there is not a clear reason. That's that's sort of the scary part from an, an American perspective. We don't really know why they were so bad. I think the top theory, at least in terms of 
the collective team sort of looking disjointed. I think Vlako and Anoski rotated the lineups a lot. Players didn't really have a chance to grow into the tournament. They weren't playing together repeatedly. He, he played a different lineup every game. So I think that's sort of a top theory for collectively why the team didn't play well. But I think we're, we're still in the dark and I don't really have a read on necessarily is why the individual players were so bad. The technical execution, um, you know, balls bouncing off players' shins, not trapping the ball, sending passes 15 yards away from their intended target. These are things that are a little more mysterious. And, you know, going back to US versus Canada, in the 2015 World Cup, you'll remember the opening game of that tournament, the US did not play very well. They looked disjointed, but they beat you guys because of individual performances that stood out. Hope Solo stood on her head. Megan Rapino scored on, you know, less than a half chance. But that didn't happen this time around. The team was both disjointed and none of the players stepped up. So I think the roster rotation probably had something to do with it. Maybe the fact that they won a World Cup, they came into this tournament unbeaten in 44 games. That doesn't help. I don't think their mentality was in the right place. But this is something that's going to be investigated for a long time, I think. I think the players and the coach, from what they've said, they're still trying to figure it out. Sort of the polar opposite trajectory, it feels like, with the US is the, the rise of Sweden. I've been so impressed with Sweden over the course of this tournament. I feel like it has been their tournament. And as Susie mentioned in the press conference, it sort of was their gold medal to lose. So Susie, I'm really curious about your thoughts on the Swedish women's team. You've been following them from a European perspective. You've been following them at Clubland as well. A lot of the players play in the FAWSL. How have you seen Sweden's tournament? Sweden have been marvellous to watch. Um, and what I think is really interesting is when you contrast this tournament to the Rio Olympics, um, obviously they, they were sort of quite heavily criticised then, um, particularly by Hope Solo, for, you know, who called them cowards when they were knocked, um, uh, knocked, sweet, uh, knocked the US out in the quarterfinal stage um, for their very, very defensive style of play and their, their, very, their, their kind of hunker in and, and, and get the job done. Um, mentality, which really, really frustrated the US and other teams throughout that tournament. Um, I think they scored four goals on their way to the final. Uh, this time they had scored 13 by the time of the final. So that sort of highlights just how much things have changed. Um, they've really added sort of attacking strength to their game. And I, I, I almost at the end was thinking that they're sort of a few years ahead on a similar journey to Canada. Um, but Canada would just had a little bit more tactical astuteness in that final to get the job done. But actually, uh, really, um, that, you know, they're both teams built on such great defences and Sweden have added some incredible attacking um, play to their game because they've got this great generation of players in their sort of mid to late 20s that um that are sort of tearing it up at club uh, at club level and, and and bringing that into their country um which is really really great to see the saddest part was uh seeing the state of um, Hedvig Lindahl and uh, Caroline Seeger at the end of the match who just 
absolutely broken. Um, and Christine Sinclair was asked about Seager in the press conference and said, oh, I, you know, she's my friend. I, I, I shared a house with her in New York uh, where we were playing on the same team. My heart absolutely breaks for her. Um, and, and it felt like it felt so genuine. Like her, she looked absolutely devastated for her because, you know, it would have been exactly the same situation the other way around. Um, you know, another great of the game or a couple of greats of the game potentially going away from uh, football without uh, having won a gold medal for their team. And um, But the, the interesting thing for me is that you look at the Sweden team and you think with those two retiring, they're still going to be up there. Whereas at the moment with Canada, if Sink goes, you sort of feel like you know that that will be a little step back for them initially um although she hasn't said she's going anywhere and said she'll probably go on um so for me the impressive thing is the strength of 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 the attack for Sweden but the problem is is their domestic league um it has sort of dipped a little bit has fallen off the pace and that's the risk I think for them in the long term is whether they keep providing this insane layer of talent um through their system to fuel some of the biggest the best clubs in Sweden and not just in Europe generally. Susie, are they the team to beat come the Euros or is it is it the Netherlands again? And I guess this also ties into what happened with GB. I mean are Sweden the team to beat in Europe at the moment or is it still still the Netherlands despite their disappointing tournament? It's a great question. It's really hard because it's basically pitting all-out attack against a more balanced team. Um, so, yeah, like my my head says that it's still the Netherlands that are the ones to beat just because they are so, so, so potent that they have sort of mastered this. No matter how many goals you score against us, we're going to score more. Um, and I would say a World Cup or an Olympics where you've got a sort of bigger range of teams um, like stylistically I suppose um, you, you they come a little bit more unstuck but in Europe it's a lot easier for them I think to to sweep the board um, but Sweden are, are really tough um, yeah I, I, it's it for me it's between those two teams for the for the um, uh, for the Euros next summer. Um, I can't really look beyond them as much as, you know, obviously Germany didn't qualify for this tournament and had a fairly disappointing World Cup, but I think they'll be back very, very strong. England, I have literally no idea what they're going to look like come the Euros, which is slightly concerning. But yeah, I mean, it's for me, it's those two all the way as the teams to beat. Well, I mean, what do you take out of the the GB sort of, failure here Susie because if they felt even though they sort of won their group and I think were probably rated had clearly had lots of pieces of the puzzle they always felt like they were going to be shaky and obviously we knocked them out great for us <laughs> but like I mean in terms of the tournament how was it received back home what was the assessment like were the expectations low were they high it's just from the perspective of back in the UK and then also there on the on the ground in Tokyo what what was the assessment of Team JB? which was predominantly England players, of course. Yeah, it's a weird one because the obviously Team GB is an unusual entity in that it only comes together once every four years and even then has only done that now twice 
um, because of the uh, national politics between the, the nations involved. Um, but that coupled with the fact that, you know, the pandemic meant that um, they weren't able to play a single game prior to the Olympics, um, that England, who made up 19 of the 22 player squad, had played three times in like over a year, I think it was in the end. Um, and that Wales and uh, Scotland, who provided the other players, um, had, you know, played a few um, Euro qualifiers, but, but not played much more at all, meant that it was all a little bit of an unknown entity. So I think expectations weren't really high or low. They just They just weren't really there because no one really knew what to expect at all. Um, and to be honest, I was personally like quite pleasantly surprised because I thought they, they actually looked um, coaching staff and players to be on the same page for a change. Um, at the world, I obviously I'm comparing it with England here because the majority of players being English. But, you know, at the World Cup, I often thought that if things weren't going to plan, Neville's England's looked completely headless um, and didn't know what they were doing and, you know, had no game plan. Um, or if they had a game plan, none of them believed in it. Whereas Team GB under Hegarisa looked like they all all were sort of singing from the same hymn sheet. You know, if things went against them a little bit, they sort of regrouped really, really well, at least early on anyway. Um, but the the problems were like quite familiar in the end um in the like for England obviously it's a fully English uh, English back line for the game against you guys and that defense has been shaky as hell for England for a couple of years now like can't deal with balls over the top into the box can't deal with um set pieces at all um real struggle um and often sort of like chaotic last ditch desperate defending and though those problems sort of persisted but Hegarisa was only announced as team db manager in march and she only came into the fa set up in january and in that sense you sort of think you know how long could you allow someone to be able to undo all the bad work done before um before you then expect uh, it to all turn around. So I feel quite like, I suppose, kind <laughs> to to them in that I, I feel like there's not mass, you know, there's only so many changes they could make to to the team to, to get it to a stage where it was able to compete at this game um, to a, a certain level. And I, I think they actually performed pretty well. Um, and, yeah, the Australia game, it was some not great defending. But, again, I think that's the legacy of the past set up. And I think Australia just wanted it more as well. The desire, the hunger, the 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 belief uh, as a group, the, the fact that they had had, you know, a little bit more time together with... Um, uh, with Tony Gustafsson who in every single press conference was just absolutely wonderful um, and like just uh, you know not afraid to chat tactics for fear of giving something away or um, 
or kind of sing the praise of the players and the the whole setup generally. Just he he, he was loving coaching this team, and uh, and it was it was really refreshing to see. And he also just had this incredible confidence in in himself and his sort of master plan that he he felt confident enough to lay it out for us um you know in quite a lot of detail which was really really refreshing going back to what you were saying about the defensive problems of great britain and and as a run on from that england if you were ruler of the universe and you could like go in and change some stuff what would your recommendations be in that department I suppose does there need to be better pathways or are there already people in say the FAWSL or playing in high level competitions that you think could be the next big thing in terms of you know shoring up this defense yeah I think one of the biggest problems um England and team GB have had is that there's been this um unwillingness to put the older players out to pasture for want of a nicer way of saying it. Um, and I get it in the, like, I, I they, I think the FA desperately want those players to have their swan song and to go away with a medal or um, some major tournament success and are desperate for players that have really, really fought for the game and the right to play and, and have sort of carried it on their shoulders in England for a very, very long time before it started to grow. Um, they're desperate to give them a nice send-off. And at some point, sentimentality has to be put in the bin. Um, and you have to sort of think pragmatically about the future of the team and blooding some of the younger players and giving them enough experience and letting them taste failure if necessary in order to spur success in the long term and they've been unwilling to do that and I'm sort of hoping that when Serena Wiegman comes in like that she has that because I know she's you know she's got reputation to be a quite hard liner I'm hoping she'll be quite brutal with that and I think one of the problems is um, in England we have central contracts where um, there's players who are um, paid a wage by the um, the FA as well as by their clubs um, and it, you know I I have no idea I'm guessing but I imagine it's pretty hard to you know if you're the England manager or the team GB manager to come in and say oh I'm not picking any of these players that are being paid by the FA to uh, to be England or team GB players um, and I'm going to pick a whole new set like it's not as simple as oh you can just pass over these central contracts to, to new players it doesn't quite work like that so I think that's the problem and then um, I also think like I some of the older players you just I sort of feel like at some point they've got to accept within themselves that it's if the FA isn't um, making the decision decision for them that they need to do what's right for the team as well and sort of step aside and retire from international football and like I love Steph Orton I love Jill Scott I think they're wonderful wonderful players um, and have done masses uh, for the game um, in England domestically and internationally but they're not really up to it for me anymore. And there are brilliant young talents coming through who have played the, you know, who started playing the game professionally at a professional level from a much, much younger age that are the future of this team that aren't getting enough minutes. And if you were saying straight away, like Leah Williamson and Lotta Wobbemoy, the centre-back pairing for Arsenal, have just been absolutely immense 
um, and for me should have been starting or coming on in, in many of the games. Um, and then there's, you know, Amy Turner, who's now, who was Man United and is now Orlando Pride, has, has not got an England cap. And I think she's one of the best um, best centre-backs in the country. Um, and there's there's a whole raft of them who are really, 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 really great that just aren't getting any major tournament experience at the moment because we've got this desire to sort of, I, I feel, give give the old players um, their, their sort of final go. Whereas for me, going into the Olympics, I you know, I was very much into the position that there's no way we were ever going to win gold um, because uh, the team was so... Uh, had so little time to prepare and they played so little international football in the last year and the manager's situation was so chaotic that then you've got to look at it and think, what is this tournament for? Um, you know, we're, we're not going to win it. Like, if we medal, it would be gr- a great achievement, but do we go all out for a medal or do we put our efforts into prepping England players in particular uh, for a home Euros next summer? And for me, that would have been the, the more sensible thing to do, like, regardless of whether we even got out of the groups or, or whatever it may be, like, play a load of the youngsters um, and give them the opportunity to gain some big major tournament experience before next summer, because there's not going to be a huge number of games between now and then either at a very, very competitive level, because World Cup qualifiers are all we've got. And, and you know, you're playing teams like Malta and Luxembourg without wanting to do them down too much it's not exactly the kind of elite tests that you need going into a major home tournament when you've got the likes of Sweden and the Netherlands flying over to spoil the party. Kate I'm sure you're sitting here nodding along with a lot of Susie's points that these ideas of older players being kept around perhaps a little bit longer than necessary the lack of opportunities for younger players. I mean, how have you seen those ideas threaded throughout the US's campaign this Olympics? Because I know there has been some chat about why, for example, Katarina Macario was not given enough minutes, why this is the oldest US squad that has been uh, sort of fielded um, in a major tournament. How are you sort of seeing it in light of what Susie's talking about here with England and, and Team GB? Yeah, I think there was a lot of talk of this roster being too old, and there was a tendency to sort of blame the U.S.'s problems on the fact that they had an older roster. But I think what we saw in the bronze medal game was that the older players aren't the problem. Who who sort of took it to Australia? It was Carly Lloyd and Megan Rapino, two of the oldest players on the team. So I think that clearly there is going to be some transition coming. Uh, you know, no one was ready to make an announcement in the mix zone after, you know, the game, but I would imagine Carly Lloyd and Megan Rapino are going to retire. Becky Sauerbrunn, um, veteran center back, will probably retire as well. And there are a lot of um, younger players who I think um, have potential. I think the issue, I suppose, is that they're not proven at the top level. That's why all of the U.S.'s attackers are over the age of 30, except for Lynn Williams. Um, you know, these are players who are a little bit older than some of the other teams that we've seen uh, in the Olympics, but they they still deliver. I mean, they were the oldest team at the 2019 World Cup. They won. 
they were also the oldest team at the 2015 World Cup. They won that as well. So I think there is a tendency to sort of want to push players out just because of their age. Um, I don't think that was the problem here, but I do think this is um, going to be a really interesting period of time before the 2023 World Cup. Clearly, there has to be some roster turnover. Uh, like I said, I disagree that that needed to happen sooner. I think there were other issues in Japan for the Americans. Um, but, you know, I, I think sort of a question I have is whether Vlako Andonovsky is the coach to do that. Um, I, I suspect that U.S. soccer will keep him around. I think that they brought him on probably uh, believing that he is going to help uh, revolutionize the team and evolve their tactics and sort of take them into the future of women's football, which, you know, as we all know, is growing and becoming, you know, more tactically um, challenging for teams to navigate. So I imagine that they saw enough that they still believe that that's the case. Um, but it's, it's going to be a test for him because I, um, I have to admit my choice when Jill Ellis stepped down is I thought Tony Gustafson should have been the U.S.'s top choice, and I was pretty surprised that he wasn't. Um, you know, Vlako Andonovsky did not even make the list of people that I thought the U.S. might go after. So it's going to be really interesting to see what he does with this transition. The veterans have carried this team a lot. Yes, they're older, but players like Carly Lloyd, Megan Rapino, they step up. They win you games when they play. So. It's going to be a change, and um, I don't know. It's going to be a really interesting time for the U.S. They they don't often have to rebuild in this way. There's not often this feeling that they're really in need of a rebuild. So that's going to be interesting. Caitlin, just to bounce off that, then Susie was almost emphatic in her praise of Tony during this tournament. Given your experience covering the U.S. for so long, when Tony was a crucial part. And obviously we've seen him in this tournament and in the friendlies beforehand. One, what are, what are your impressions of Tony? And what, what do you think, one, what are your impressions of what he's done with Australia already? And what do you think he can do with this team, given you, you said that he was your number one pick to take over with the US? I'm genuinely curious, given, yeah, you would have had a sort of long-running uh, view of what he's been able to do. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, Jill Ellis has gotten a lot of flack people for some reason don't think she's a very good coach i think her two world cups would beg to differ but one thing that i did always notice with the u.s squad was at halftime when it was time to give instructions or if there was an injury or a hydration break it was always tony gustafson that was delivering the instructions to the players it was it was never jill ellis jill ellis um you know, if, if you watch the game, and I, I was really curious about that dynamic between them. It, when you watch the U.S. play, Tony was in her ear, you know, suggesting things to her. So I don't know, um, you know, what the responsibilities, how they were broken down, but that always fascinated me. And, um, you know, the 2015 World Cup that the U.S. won, uh, you might remember the U.S. scored on some pretty... Um, ingenious uh, corner kicks, Tony, those were Tony's idea. He, he was the one that drew up those plays and the players I think had just worked on them like the day before or something. It, it was just sort of like a thing he came up with and they did and it worked really well. So, 
you know, I, I think that without knowing fully sort of what was happening behind the scenes, I always had the sense that he was clearly a tactician that was helping Jill Ellis and the staff sort of figure out how to approach things. And I, I think it's it's hard to argue against his record. I mean, before he was Jill Ellis's assistant, he was the assistant for Pia Sunhaga and they won a gold medal in the 20, um, 2012 Olympics. Uh, they had a lot of success as well. So, um, you know, I've only watched, I, I have to admit, because the games are in or were in the middle of the night for me here in the US, I only watched Australia when they played against the United States. Um, but I think Australia is a team that I've always really been high on. I actually thought that we're going to do much better in the 2019 World Cup. Um, I was disappointed to see how they did because I, I do think they have the talent. They have a lot of young players. Um, it's just a really exciting group of players. And I do think that they had more potential. And I think Tony clearly is someone who can tap into that potential and kind of help them um, be greater than the sum of their parts. Um, you know, I, I think in the past there was a tendency to sort of just hope that Sam Kerr could do everything sort of the way Christine Sinclair and Marta did that for their countries. But I think the encouraging thing is to see that um, Australia is a team that is growing as a collective and the way they play together, um, I think, look stronger and I, I think there's more growing to do but uh, Tony is someone who I absolutely think can do it and you know 2023 World Cup it's going to be in Australia um, I'm really I'm really excited for it it's really I don't know nice to hear praise heaped upon Tony because I don't know sometimes I feel like we're doing it but it's like maybe we're just loved up and there's not, a, we don't have all the perspective required to make a, you know, an even assessment, but in saying that it's really interesting. You touched on he's, he did a lot of work behind the scenes um, and on the ground with this U S team for this Australian team. He's really brought in a new mentality and a new way of looking at the game. And I'm wondering, do you think for the U S does that come from the coaching or is that just something that, that US mentality that perhaps was lacking this tournament, where does that come from, from your perspective? I don't know if that's a really silly question, but um, no, it's it, something. It's it's not. I think that the mentality of the US has been their edge pretty much since the team started. And that's what the players have said was missing in Japan. And I think we all saw it. Like, they are a talented team. We, we know that. They didn't just turn into a bad team since uh, the 2019 World Cup ended. So the mentality is what was missing, clearly. And, you know, I, I actually wrote a book about the U.S. women's national team. So I'll just plug that if people want to read all about the U.S. women's national team. It's called The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. And that was sort of a question I was curious about going into working on that book. And what I learned is that that mentality has been there since the 1980s when the team first started. Um, I interviewed players who played in the first tournament that the US played in 1985 and they said the other teams were better than us, they were more technical, they knew more about soccer, but we had a mentality where we were going to fight like hell and just try to beat the crap out of them. So that has sort of been there from the beginning and that has continued from the players it has sort of been passed on from player to 
you know, generation of player to player. And Pia Sunhaga has a quote in my book where she said, um, you know, the mentality of the players is contagious. And, you know, she's Swedish. She said, in Sweden, we think we're really good with tactics. We're really good uh, with technical things. But the US has this mentality, they just go for it. And I didn't give that to them. They taught it to me. So I think that's something that, you know, I think if Tony can take that mentality that I'm sure he uh, saw very up close and personal um, in some very epic wins that the US has had in his time with them, if he can sort of help instill that with the Australian team, not that, you know, they don't have that already. I think we have seen from the players, they have a lot of fight. Um, but if he can help sort of foster that culture even more and help it grow, I think, you know, that's a really good thing. Because I do think, obviously, the US has a lot of advantages with their talent. The US has advantages with things like Title IX, which, you know, you can't really replicate. But their mentality, I think, has always been sort of the edge that sort of makes the difference in close games. I'm curious as well, Kate, your opinion in a similar sort of way to how Susie sort of projected forward and, and spoke about some players who she wished uh, would have gotten more minutes or, or who she wished would have come into the setup. How do you see this US women's national team moving forward? Because as you mentioned earlier, there is going to be a moment over the next couple of years where some older players are going to need to shuffle out and some fresh blood is needed to come in. Who are you liking the look of perhaps across the NWSL or elsewhere in the world that you can see stepping up in the next couple of years, perhaps in time for the Women's World Cup in 2023? Yeah, I think the the first obvious one is Katarina Macario. Um, she was on the roster in Japan, but she didn't play very much. And I think that was a product of um, the alternates were added to the roster after the fact. And I think if Blacko and Anofsky knew that that was going to happen, I do think he might have selected different players. Because when he first announced the roster, he said he thought she was close, but she wasn't ready just yet. So then suddenly she's on the roster and he apparently still didn't think she was ready because she only appeared in one game against New Zealand. So um, Katarina Macario is a player who I think we, it, you know, in the U.S. have all sort of hyped up as the next big thing. Um, she's very crafty, technical. I mean, she grew up in Brazil, so she has that, you know, Brazilian flair to the way that she plays. She's someone that I think the U.S. can build around. There's sort of an open question of what's the best position to play her at, but that's something that I think we're going to see the coach figure out in the next couple of years. Here in Portland, a player that plays for the Thorns, Sophia Smith, I think, um, you know, she's a young player with a career ahead of her, and she has done very well in the NWSL. Um, I'm excited to see her trajectory and her growth. Um, you know, Trin Trinity Rodman, Ashley Sanchez, Brianna Pinto, there are a lot of young players who have the potential to really step up. Um, you know, I, I think we'll have to see. You have to be cautious about uh, young players that you hype up too much. I think in the US, um, maybe more on the men's side than the women's side, but we've had a little bit of disappointment by hyping up young players. But I do think that there, there are the pieces there, but now's the time to really fold them in because, the, you know, there wasn't the time before the players who are over 30 have not 
needed or have shown that they are going to be supplanted anytime soon. So I think at the very least, having that competition, bringing those players in, pushing those older players, pushing, you know, Alex Morgan and Tobin Heath and Kristen Press. Um, I think creating that competition would be a really good thing for the U.S. So hopefully um, that process starts immediately. Let's start getting some of those younger players in there. Caitlin, we spoke to Steph Young from The Athletic before this tournament, and I think what she said, what a lot of people are thinking, they couldn't believe that Mitch Purse missed out, and it seems like she's just kicked on in the NWSL. It's a bit of a proving a point. Is that is she a player that you think can go to that next level? Um, I think it's been talked about players like Crystal Dunn who've missed out on, say, World Cups, gone to another level, and said, you, you can't not pick me. Is, is she a player who can sort of level up, I guess? I think... That's an interesting one because Midge Purse plays as a forward. She She's an attacker normally. And for the U.S. where they have been playing her is as a fullback. And realistically, I don't really think that she, um, you know, I think she's a very good player. I don't think she is in a position to uh, push out a player like Alex Morgan or Kristen Press or one of those players. So if Midge Purse is going to make the U.S. team, it's going to be as a fullback. Um, but I think, you know, there, there's a, there's certainly a lack of depth at fullback for the U S number one, but I think, you know, as the U S looks to the future, they're going to have to decide how do they want to play? Um, you know, in this tournament coming in, um, I thought that their midfield trio was going to be sort of the ace in the hole. That was going to be how they were going to win games in the 2019 world cup. I think we saw that, that, that midfield trio, really help dominate and control the midfield but now in tokyo in the olympics it looked like the midfield got overrun at times so are they going to look to sort of change that formation are they going to change the way the midfield looks and if they do that then how is that changing how the fullbacks are going to play and you know all of these things sort of fit together so um i think midge purse is a player that has certainly a shot um I personally was not surprised that she didn't make the roster. She she wasn't a player I personally would have picked. Um, but I do think um, this is the period where a player like Mitch Purse uh, will have the opportunity to come in and kind of prove that Blacko Endonofsky made a mistake and uh, not that she cares, prove that I, I'm wrong in saying that I wouldn't have brought her. So, um, you know, I, I think there are a lot of players like that who are maybe um, – close and, and they're sort of figuring out how, how they would be used for, you know, how they would fit into the U.S. system. I don't really have a question, I suppose, more something that would be great to get your perspective on both of you. Um, so, for example, with, with the European teams, we only saw three in this Europe, um, Olympic tournament. And as you've touched on, Caitlin, as well, like the U.S. played Australia twice and three of our group ended up in the semifinals. So there's obviously, it's a very small setup. I mean, the obvious answer seems to be expand the tournament, but I would it would be really interesting from both of your perspectives with the European hat on and the American-based hat on as well, what you think of that. And if there's perhaps other things as well, more broadly in terms of increasing competitive matches that could be done as well from from both of those teams it definitely should be expanded at least to the size of the men's tournament the fact that it's three groups it also really really irritates me that the groups are um what is it 
E, F and G because the men's is A, B, C and D um, when the women's is the big tournament. I don't understand why they can't both be A, B, C, A, B, C, D, whatever it, you know, what, however many there are. Um, but yeah, like, I think it definitely needs to be expanded. I mean, whether that favours Europe or not, like, and gives a few more teams, um, you know, I'm, I'm a bit indifferent to, to be honest. I kind of quite like the, how cutthroat it is to to get into this competition um from a european point of view and that it it sort of keeps it as a really really um special tournament to get into um and to, and to be a part of and being an, Olymp- an olympian is is something so few european teams get to do that whilst it would probably improve the competitiveness of the tournament as a whole to bring you know have a couple more spaces and have the likes of the Netherlands and stuff uh, of the Netherlands were here but um, Germany um, and France involved you know would obviously um, be exciting but at the same time I mean like one of the the great stories of this tournament has been uh, the journey of Zambia um, and um, you know New Zealand ahead of a uh, the Women's uh, World Cup on um, New Zealand and Australian soil and um, yeah these these kind of stories of teams that we don't necessarily get to see on the biggest of stages so in a sense like in, in many ways I kind of like to see um, expansion but maybe expansion to um, to countries that don't necessarily um, make World Cups and European Championships because um, the Olympics is kind of quite unique in in being able to offer that opportunity in the same way that it offers an opportunity for young players on the men's side. Um, I mean, Olympic football is a weird one for Team GB fans because obviously um, it's it's not something that necessarily happens and not something that you know necessarily the Welsh and the Scots, not the players, but generally and the Northern Irish actually like to happen. Um, so you know I, I like I really like having women's football at the Olympics um, and having a team GB side purely because it adds another major tournament into the calendar when you know it's still a game that very much needs the momentum of major tournaments to grow generally speaking um, I'm not convinced by the talk of making the World Cup every two years um, I think that would water down the uh, the the specialness of the World Cup for one of a significantly better way of saying that um, and uh, the calendars are already really really full um, so I thought like I feel like fitting in much more competitive high level international competition is is really really difficult. Um, I think friendlies could be chosen better. Particularly, I think other teams do it a lot better, and I do think it helped that um, uh, that you know plenty of teams had qualifiers for various tournaments over the last year. But from an England point of view, um, they barely played, and the teams they did play, you know, weren't necessarily uh, kind of top picks. Um, you would you would want to really really test yourself against. That's partly because of COVID, um, partly because um friend you know friendlies weren't necessarily allowed and they so they couldn't really arrange uh any big ones um and yeah so from my point of view I think bigger friendlies that you know properly help you prepare for 
major the major tournaments do come around and a decent uh decently sized competitive olympics tournament actually fits into the calendar of events quite well that means you do have you know tournaments three and four years um and yeah like i'm 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 sort of pretty pretty happy with the general layout of international women's football bar the fact that the despite the women's football being the the bigger tournament of the two at the olympics it's the smaller of the two um team wise and um gets the stupid uh efg billing from an american perspective i'll just say um the tournament should definitely be expanded. The fact that it's smaller than the men's tournament is ridiculous, especially when you consider that, unlike the men's tournament, the top players in the world are competing in it. It's not a under 23 tournament. I would just add, um, you know, I think there, in terms of expanding, there's some pushback from uh, people in Europe saying there's no there's no time in the calendar to have actual qualifiers. But I think that's really important. I think having teams qualify by how they placed in the World Cup is a ridiculous way to decide who's going to play in an Olympics. So um, the pushback is that there's no space in the calendar to have an actual qualification tournament. As soon as the World Cup ends, teams in Europe are competing for spots in the Euros. I would say that in North America, the way we do it is there's just a one window tournament that happens really quickly. Obviously in Europe, they have way more teams than we have uh, in CONCACAF, but I think you can find a way to sort of pare down that field. It could be, you know, teams that qualified for the World Cup. It could be FIFA rankings. Figure out some way to pare down the number of teams that get into the qualifiers and then just have like a one window qualification tournament. You know, the World Cup, seven of the eight quarterfinalists were from Europe. The United States was the only team not from Europe. So it's really sort of unfair, um, I think, to eliminate them based on a, you know, a global competition or sort of like, you know, who you got in the group, you know, which teams you got from other confederations sort of decided how far you got through the World Cup. It's just not really fair. So I think they definitely need to expand the tournament in women's soccer, you know, outside of Europe, uh, where they have the Euros, everyone else just has the World Cup and the Olympics. So they should really try to make the Olympics, um, you know, a more robust competition, at least 16 teams, um, probably expand the rosters as well. I don't understand why it used to be 18 in the first place. 22 seemed to work just fine. You know, maybe make it 23. Um, but I, I think there are some things that can be done to improve it, and they absolutely should. I can, there's also room to maybe, <laughs> if they can, add some extra days because teams just look knackered by the end. Uh, it, just to throw all the way back to the start again, guys, I'd just love to get your perspective on Bev Priestman, 35 years old, first major tournament. I know she worked under Phil Neville. She came through that Canadian pathway. Just what a moment it was um, for a as a coach and just how significant it was because um yeah for me it's just it sort of flew under the radar when we all thought it was Sweden's tournament and all of a sudden Bev Priestman's taken Canada to Olympic gold um happy to get either of your perspectives on that because it just seems like a remarkable achievement at such a young age too 
Well, I know that Susie is a fan of Bev, so I'm going to let her take this one. When I realised while I was sitting in the Press Tribune that um, Bev Priestman is only five months older than me, um, I did start to wonder what the hell I had done with my life today as she was leading Canada to Olympic gold and I was sat stressing about uh, four lines of text as my intro. Um, but yeah, no, I, I she's wonderful. Um, she's always been like really, really brilliant to talk to. Um, she, you know, very widely considered to have done a lot of the, the hard graft behind Phil Neville um, with the Lionesses um, in the same way that Tony G did by all accounts for the US as well. Um, and just uh, like a supremely confident young coach that finally needed someone to give her that leg up. And I think, um, you know, if you kind of read between the lines of Phil Neville's quite pointed tweeting over the weekend he clearly quite heavily thought that the FA made a big big mistake in letting her go really really rates her um you know I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he would have wanted her or someone like Casey Stoney to to get his job after um after he went and um you know whilst uh you know we can debate the merits of Phil Neville's opinion um I think that you know there's no doubting now that um that that Bev is supremely supremely talented. Um, I was wondering last night whether she needed to leave England and go away and do something like this somewhere else because in England there is a bit of a tendency to, um, unless you've already proven that you can do it, to underestimate or, um, or assume or, uh, I don't know, play down um just how good uh people are and and not not necessarily kind of take risks on on talent uh for for fear of messing up basically you know there's a tendency to go for the big names and play it safe um and you know now if she does return at some point in the future not wanting to upset Canadians at any point who have completely adopted her Sinclair said she's Canadian now in the press conference and they're they're keeping her um but if she were to return um she returns with this you know you know massive well gold medal around her neck and reputation uh to boot um a reputation that in and of itself wasn't strong enough on its own to get the FA to turned around and give her the job which for me is really really disappointing and I'm hoping that it's a little bit of a wake-up call for the FA um, who suddenly start to think a little bit more carefully about the way they make decisions and uh, the way they define what a good coach is um, you know she it, what I thought was really nice after the semi-final was that Jesse Fleming was saying that you know she was my coach under 17 level um, and you know sort of taking me through this team and uh, really really believes in me and then it's you know Bev making the decision to uh, take Sinky off penalties after she's missed one and give it to this 23 year old who she coached under 17 level who is not playing regularly for a club um, and hand her penalties against the US <laughs> the, the rival they've not beaten in 20 years on one of the biggest international stages um, and say and say I believe that you can do this is like just so ballsy um, um, and such a brave move and I, I think every just Bev 
talked in every single press conference about having told her players to be brave. And, um, you know, I think part of the reason she was able to get them to embrace that is that she's been really brave. You know, like I said in the earlier in, in you know, taking Sinky out when, uh, when games are getting tough, not being sentimental about it, not not thinking, oh, you know, this is this could end up being, although it's not looking like it will be, but it could end up being her last ever international match. Well, you know, we've got to keep her on the pitch. You know, none of that sentimentality. Oh, you know, it's a penalty in a big major tournament where she could finally get gold. Are we going to take that away from her? No room for sentimentality. She's done. She's made the decisions. Every point necessary to um, to to win and to get them through it from a tactical point of view. And like I think that um, that bravery filtered into the players. Um, I, I just I'm just really happy with her because happy for her because she's just so wonderfully nice. And you know every single press conference. Um, it was you know, sort of different to uh, the sort of joy I got from Tony G's pressers, who was, you know, like I delighted in sort of his analysis of the games and the 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 stats he would throw out and the the passion for the team. The passion for the team, I would say, you know, was very similar. But um, there was just there's just a sort of giddy joy about Bev in those press conferences, like seeing someone set free almost of the shackles of being number twos to um to you know various um, quite you know conservatively playing male managers for a very long time and suddenly is being given this this chance to run with a team that actually that is actually packed with a lot of lot of talent um and has and has proven it and she's only like you say she's only 35 um which is absolutely brilliant for uh, for I'd say women coaches around the world that you know you've got this this fantastic talented young female coach um, winning a major international tournament um, it's you know not not very often that teams will put their trust in a young manager like that and yeah like just delighted for her because she is just so 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 um, likeable <laughs> as well as being as this tournament has shown, incredibly tactically astute. To wrap things up, I was going to ask the five of you to basically offer up either your favourite goal, your favourite player, your favourite storyline from this tournament, because we've already kind of touched on some of them throughout this chat. But I'll start with you, Caitlin. What's been your favourite moment of this tournament? Gosh, that's that's difficult when um, the U.S. wasn't giving me very much to work with. And because uh, the games were in the middle of the night, they were the only team that I really watched. So um, I am going to pick there's nothing to pick from the U.S. So I'm going to pick Vivian Medema. Um, she is such a class player. And I think what really stuck out, you know, in that game against the US, but I think throughout the tournament, I've certainly kept up um, with highlights and things like that. I think she, you know, there's an argument she was the best player in the tournament. And it was sort of, you know, disappointing to see uh, the Netherlands get knocked out. You know, if the US, I kind of felt like if the US wasn't gonna win gold anyway, maybe they should just let the Netherlands stick around so we could watch them a little more. Cause um, you know, 
I thought they were really fun to watch. So seeing Medima, um, just uh, the the talent that she has, the world class talent. Um, yeah, she she was really fun to watch. Um, and I guess you know I'll, I'll be kind to the U.S. and I'll say um, seeing a listener have uh, the game she did against the Netherlands and sort of save the U.S.'s hopes of getting a medal was was probably the maybe the only but uh the biggest bright spot for the americans especially because Alyssa Nair is someone who has been doubted a lot because you know she got the job when hope solo got kicked off the team for calling sweden cowards um she sort of just got thrust into the role she had only seven caps at the time and people were kind of like why why is this the starting goalkeeper you know it was a little bit of a growing pains for her so to see her in the world cup save a penalty against england and then in this olympics save uh three penalties against the netherlands i mean that's a great story for her so um i'm, I'm sorry for being so negative to the us susie what's gonna stick with you from this tournament i think uh, actually a, a more theme in that the old players um, on the whole really stepped up to the plate and and if this is, does prove to be the last tournament for a lot of them um, like really kind of went out on a high you know you've got Seeger and Lindahl obviously they're going to be bitterly disappointed getting silver but getting silver um, you've got Sinky getting gold you've got Rapino and Lloyd stepping up in that semi-final against Australia and then um, uh, in the bronze medal match big style um, to get them that bronze medal um, you, uh, you've got um, Ellen White still doing it for England at, at, at the top level um, and I, I just really really liked Marta obviously and Formiga playing fantastically for Brazil I just really liked that um, you know, a lot of the talk around those players going into the tournament was whether they should be in teams and whether it was time to move them on and stuff. Um, and yes, there's an argument to say that from a sort of future planning point of view, but it was really, really nice to see them all still show that they've got it um, for hopefully um, one more, you know, the, the last time, but not necessarily for some of them. Angela, what's been your favourite thing? I really enjoyed watching Zambia. We touched on them earlier, but I think they went above and beyond, I think, everyone's expectations of them. And they did speak to that pre-tournament. So um, the captain, Barbara Banda, who sensational tournament, six goals, two hat-tricks, amazing. And also, like, really, really amazing goals as well. I highly rate her, big fan now. Um, she said pre-tournament that it may be our first time to play in the Olympics, but we are not going just to make up the numbers. It's a new challenge for us and we'll take it as it comes. And I think that they also just brought such chaos. And as an Australian fan, it was a little bit like anxiety inducing because of that third place, like the best third place team would be the one to go through. But yeah, I think, and they also just showed such, resilience um especially in their last game against brazil and i just yeah really really rated their tournament and i am really excited hopefully to see more african teams brought into the fold for future olympics um and future world cups as well so yeah that was definitely my fave narrative aside from australia doing their thing which was very very nice but we've covered that in a lot 
of depth in previous episodes. Go check them out. Good plug there. Very proud of you. Sam, what have you liked from this tournament? Sort of the polar opposite of Susie, but also drawing on Angela's answer. I've really loved seeing young players stepping up to the plate this tournament. Barbara Bander is only 21 and she's already in the history books for the Olympics. Uh, from an Australian perspective, Tegan Micah, we've talked about this previously. Our new number one goalkeeper is only 23. Seeing Mary Fowler, uh, Kara Cooney-Cross, and even Ellie Carpenter is still only in her early 20s, stepping up and, and really fitting in beautifully into that team and taking them as far as they have, I think was fabulous. Watching Fleming emerge for Canada to Christine Sinclair in some ways um, and even seeing players you know like Lauren Hemp for, for Great Britain who I just thought was dazzling she's still only 21 um, and the US as well I mean even though Makara didn't really get much of a run I did I did enjoy seeing a Lynn Williams who I know is a little bit older but players on the fringes who really had uh, they took their opportunity with both hands and and really went for it I think that this was this was one of the tournaments for, for those kinds of players as well. And as was mentioned previously, I, I want this tournament to expand because it does give teams like Zambia, teams like Chile, teams like, you know, that don't often get a look in elsewhere. It gives them and their players a platform to announce themselves. Like Banda plays her club football in China, but I don't think she's going to be playing in China for long after her performances at Tokyo. So that's why I think the Olympics is so important is, is giving all of these young and fringe players a springboard into, into the next stage of their careers. So I've really, really loved that. And Anna, what's stood out for you? Torn between a few things because I love Jessie Fleming um, and the way she stepped up in these games. The real, like Sam said, the passing of the baton. Um, I love Sam Kerr, but for me, it feels like it's just been another step, especially here in Australia, in terms of the women's game attracting more and more fans, getting more people involved, more people on the back of it. For the Matildas, like breaking records, like 2.4 million or whatever, watching watching games. Um, and if I had to pick, like it just it just feels like the momentum's growing and growing. We saw it with the World Cup, but for Australian because Australians usually tend to bat above their average at the Olympics, especially because of things like swimming. So we really get on board and a lot of us have been in lockdown and everyone's just been you know following the Matildas going and going and going it feels like it's been another wave of momentum and if I had to pick one moment Susie you might want to pull the headphones out here um it had to be like Australia trailing Team GB 2-1 ball comes in Alana Kennedy flicks on the header Sam Kerr takes a touch lets the ball settle and just puts it past Steph Horton for the absolute scattered GB defence, to be honest, to take that game to extra time. It was, the, it was the moment where I felt here in Australia, everyone just went, we're all in. We're all in on the Matildas. We're following them all the way. And though we fell short, you could just feel it was another wave of momentum. And it just gives so much excitement coming to this World Cup that we're going to share with New Zealand. People sort of rode the Matildas home all the way. And in the process, I think, got to see teams like Sweden, see the US, see everyone that we played and get, I guess, a better grasp of women's football and some of the, the characters and players, the Fridolina Rolfos, for example, that I think a lot of people in Australia would have never heard of despite being such a good player. And that's what really excited me about this tournament. Um, the Olympics isn't just a football tournament, but it felt it got so many people, at least here, on the back of women's football. And I think... That's hopefully something that we can take forward into 2023 and beyond. So, yeah, as we say here, how good. <laughs> <laughs> 
and how good we don't have to wait much longer for major tournaments and another Olympics. So thank you so much for tuning in. And we really have to thank Susie and Caitlin for joining us. We've kind of got, you know, all four corners of the globe covered here. So thank you, Susie. And thank you, Caitlin, for jumping on and chatting with us for a very large amount of time. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. I'm glad to hear that. And you're definitely both welcome back anytime. But thank you for tuning in as well. We've covered a lot of stuff this Olympics. We've given you a lot of episodes. So thank you for listening basically every other day during uh, these games. If you've liked what we've done, remember you can find us on ESPN.com.au and the ESPN app. We're on Spotify, Apple and Google. If you like what we've done, feel free to subscribe and leave a review wherever you do listen. If you want to chat to us, we're at the Far Post Pod on all social media. But until next time, thanks so much for tuning in. We're going to have a little break, but we will be seeing you very, very soon.